information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are going to talk about playing with fire, price discrimination in practice. So, Ron... Yes. Why is movie theater popcorn so expensive? <laughs> and I built a whole career around that question. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm giving you a softball is really what you're saying. Uh, well, no, it's actually, you know, it's very uh, probably counterintuitive. I mean, when you ask that question of people around the world in audiences and sophisticated audiences, you know, business audiences, they'll say, well, it, it, it's, a, it's a captive audience. And that doesn't explain it. Uh, I mean, if that was true, if, if that was the criteria, then they would have pay toilets. But the fact of the matter is the theater owners know something that maybe the rest of us don't, which is, you know, if they did have pay toilets, what they'd make at the pay toilets, they'd probably lose in, um, in revenue at the box office, right? So something else is going on. Exactly. What's that something else, Ron? It's the subject of today's show, isn't it? It, it is, and that it's it's called price discrimination. And I just we we probably should are going to end up saying this a few times. The disclaimer on that term is we're not talking about discrimination based upon a race or an ethnicity or anything like that, a religion. It's discriminating based upon willingness and ability to pay. So what's happening in the movie theater is. What the theater owner knows is that some people are willing to pay more for popcorn than others. Some buy it, some don't. And the problem for the movie theater owner is he can't identify who's who at the door, right? He can't go out in the line outside and say, hey, Mr. Kless, when you get in the theater, are you going to buy popcorn for you and your family? Uh, if he tried to do that or if he said, I'll give you a dollar off each ticket if you do buy a concession – um, you know, people wouldn't maybe tell the truth. So what he's doing is he's giving you an opportunity set when he sells you a ticket. You can go in and enjoy the movie or you can go in and enjoy the movie and get popcorn. And he's charging a higher price to the popcorn lovers and he's basically extracting this concept of the consumer surplus that we're going to talk about from the self-selected popcorn lovers. And that's where he's making his profit and so he knows that he, some 
In other words, some customers are more price sensitive than others, right? Students, families with a large amount of kids don't want to go in there and spend money on popcorn. They just want to see the show. He doesn't want to chase that business away. So he lets them come in at the lower price, keeps the ticket price low for them, and then basically charges the higher price to the popcorn lovers and extracts his profit. So it's actually a really, really smart pricing strategy. It's extraordinarily sophisticated, and it's really all over the place when you begin to look at it, just absolutely everywhere. And I, I don't know if it started with the th- movie theater owners and popcorn, but it certainly has spread to sporting events and Victoria's Secret catalogs. Perhaps we'll talk about that. But this idea of price discrimination, and again, this does not mean that we charge a higher price to someone based on race, creed, or skin color otherwise, right? That's not right. what we're saying at all. It has, it's, 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 it's really a self-selected discrimination. In other words, I am willing to pay more. Therefore, uh, the, the business owner or theater owner is going to give me that opportunity to pay more because I'm willing to do so. Right. And, and Ed, this goes back to an economist by the name of Arthur C. Pigo. Who, who we believe is the first person to have used the term price discrimination in a book that he wrote in the 20s. And, of course, he was a student of um, a guy named Alfred Marshall. And if any of our listeners have ever sat through an economics course or had to draw a supply and demand graph, you, you kind of know who I'm talking about because Alfred Marshall is the developer of the supply and demand graph. And I, I guess the best way to illustrate this is, is with a story. I was in San Diego, and I walked into a used bookstore and I was I was looking for uh, Stanley Marcus. I, I think it's a gentleman we've mentioned on the show before. I was looking for one of his books called Quest for the Best. And I ran across a first edition autographed by Stanley Marcus. Now, you know, Marcus is no longer with us. He passed away. And, of course, this was years ago when he was still alive. And I, when I saw this book, it was in really good shape, pristine condition, and I said to myself, I, I'd pay $100 for this book. I, literally, mm-hmm. when I opened it up and saw the little scribble price that the owner had put there, it was $10. Now, the question is, when I walked up to the cash register, you, you can imagine I didn't tell the person, the owner, hey, I was willing to pay 100 bucks for this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I paid them the $10. And then the question becomes, when I walked out of that store, how much wealthier was I? Well, basic math would say at least ninety dollars, Ron. But I suspect that it's more than that. But no, no, that's right. It's it, it, it is more than that. I mean, if you take into account value, but if you just look at the numbers and the transaction, what I was willing to pay was a hundred. He got ten, so I walked out uh, ninety dollars wealthier in my mind. And what's fascinating about that is economists call that what I got consumer surplus. I walked away with the consumer surplus. So the question then becomes, had that book owner known anything about Ron Baker, could he have charged me more than $10? Now, he, he might have been able to charge me 100 He might have been able to charge me 90 80 Anything above 10 he charges me, drops to his bottom line. His problem is he, he can't sit there and interview every customer that comes in the shop. I mean, maybe he could if they were loyal customers and shopped a lot and he knew their tastes and preferences. Um, but, you know, this poor guy, I kept the consumer surplus. And so Marshall kind of developed this concept of consumer and producer surplus when a, when a producer, when a seller 
sells for more than what they would have sold for, right? They, were, in other words, they were willing to take a lower price. Uh, but he measures that; it calls that the producer surplus. And and the thing about it is, these two surpluses kind of are a measurement of the wealth of an economy in some respects. And isn't this consumer surplus similar to what Marx called this? Is it surplus value where he thought it was that therefore then the exploitation of the worker? I mean, it's the same thing, isn't it? Just in a slightly different view, looking at labor as opposed to a thing. Right, right. I mean, Marx was all about the labor and the, the labor added all the value. And, you know, Marx would say about the used bookstore owner who, you know, signed a lease downtown San Diego and all, that he didn't provide any value. It was all the laborers who, I don't know, I guess bound the books. I'm, I'm not sure what he would say about the authors. <laughs> I guess there would be labor in that too. Since he was an author, he'd probably give them a break. But yeah, he didn't like profit. So he didn't, he didn't view that as surplus. I mean, he viewed that as exploitation. But it is kind of the same principle expanded to take into account value and uh, you know profit. And, and just along the lines of having that conversation, it's, it's sort of what we see if you've ever watched the show Pawn Stars, right? That they are having that individual one-on-one conversation that so they can search out the the, the best possible. Price because and then they always talk about well you know I've uh, I've got a uh, I, I've got got at my store here we've got a you know rent to pay salaries etc so I'm not going to just pay what it's worth I've got to pay it there's got to be a difference right I got to make money on this and it's going to take so long to sell this rare item and all yeah he's always pulling that card in the negotiation I have to say it's pretty effective or or at least it seems to be. But one of the things you never hardly ever see them ask it, I've only seen them ask it a couple times, and I think it's just out of you know curiosity, is what the person paid for the item. Because that's a historical cost. That's irrelevant to the value today. Absolutely irrelevant. Right, whether they found it in their old Aunt Martha's trunk or whether they purchased it at a yard sale for a dollar or even $100. Right. Now, sometimes they bring it up and they say, well, I paid – Five thousand dollars for this is an auction, and you know he'll say, "Well, sucks to be you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's the important point. I part, I think, is that sunk costs are sunk. You know, past costs are past, and pricing takes place in the here and now, and even in the future. Right. If you think about, I, I remember filling up at the gas station a while back when the, this is when prices were really starting to ratchet up. You know, every single day there'd be you know a jump at the pump, and and uh, a guy sitting there next to me, uh, filling up, said, "I can't believe this. Hey, you know, this just went up a dime or whatever from last time, or twenty cents a gallon from last time." He said, "I know it's the same gas sitting under the tank, in, in the tanks. You know, shouldn't they?" In other words, he was saying that they paid historically for that, so they should sell it at the historical price. And I'm like, you don't understand. They have to replace that tank when it runs empty. Right. So right. they have and to that, pay that's really tomorrow's the definition. Price. That's the definition of a commodity too, right? Where, if you, where the future price is actually taken into account today to a certain extent as well. A- absolutely. And yeah. You know, we call this playing with fire, Ed, and, and for the life of me, some economist wrote that, and I, and I couldn't find the actual site. I thought it was uh, Pigou, but, but I don't think it was. But somebody did say that uh, price discrimination is like playing with fire because it brings up this issue that we've talked about in the, in the corporate social responsibility show and the ethics show about this idea of a, uh, of a just price. But let me just give the, the definition of price discrimination, it occurs when a good or service is sold at different prices that do not reflect differences in production costs. 
And, and that's the technical definition. So you may have a product sitting there that is sold at two radically different prices uh, to, to, to different customers or maybe even the same customer. That, and, and it's not at all explained by costs, kind of like the popcorn. I mean, yeah, the popcorn eaters, uh, they do impose a little bit more cost on the theater, right? They have to have a concession stand. They have to pay people to man the concession stand. They have to have probably hire more janitors than they would to you know, clean up the sticky mess. But the fact of the matter is it, it, it's nowhere near the premium they're charging for those items, Right, so that's where they make the bulk of their profit. So it, it really uh, doesn't have anything to do with cost to the theater as much as the value to the customer. Well, and what's interesting about that too is it, it is the ethical issue of of people raising their prices, and oftentimes businesses that that do that are considered to be unjust. But yet, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that it was unethical to ask for a lower price, which is really the flip side, isn't it? Well, exactly. In my book example in the used bookstore, was I unethical by not going up and revealing my what is called in, in economics the reservation price to the to the customer? Should I have revealed to the to the owner, hey, I should pay you a hundred dollars for this because that's what I'm willing to pay? I, nobody. In fact, if I told people I did that, they'd call me an idiot. But we're okay with that. So if it's unethical to pay. If it's unethical to, for businesses to charge high prices, is it unethical for consumers to take advantage of low prices like I did? Well, that is a fascinating question. We'll, we'll get to explain that in our next segment. We talk more about price discrimination. But first, we want to remind you that you can get a hold of us at TSOE at Verisage.com. Or go to verisage.com slash TSOE for show notes and previews as well as to sign up for our newsletter. And also on Twitter, you can participate in the show by using pound TSOE as a hashtag. And we do monitor that during the show. So please feel free to type in your questions. And now we're going to take a quick break from our first sponsor, Leading Results. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. 
Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here talking about playing with fire, price discrimination in practice. And we've already talked about uh, what price discrimination is. And again, just a disclaimer, uh, we are not talking about uh, discrimination based upon race, sex, ethnicity, religion, anything like that. It is simply discrimination based upon a customer's ability and willingness to pay. We've defined price discrimination as uh, as occurring when a good or service is sold at different prices that do not reflect differences in production costs. And like Ed mentioned, this is a very ubiquitous practice. You, you see this all over the place, and it's it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it, Ed, to, to see how clever – some of the examples of, of companies who engage in this, like, like I think the theater owners were pretty clever when they came up with the idea of selling popcorn. That was done in the 30s. Yes. No, no, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, there's great, there's great examples and I know we're going to talk a lot about them. You know, it's just, as we're, we're sitting here talking, I'm really, the, your definition or the definition that we've been using, which is willingness to pay. It, it's it's definitely counterintuitive to the rest of the show. This is practically socialist, isn't it, Ron? This is this is this is redistributionist thinking. Because um, what what we're saying is is if somebody has the ability to pay more, well, why not let them pay more? Especially if they they value it more than someone else. In a lot of ways, price discrimination one re- relieves richer people of their money a little bit faster, but in some ways it also helps those that are less, uh, less uh, economically advanced uh, to, to be able to, to, to buy things for themselves that they other, otherwise couldn't afford. No, you're right, Ed. And, and it, can we postpone this? Because that is an, I do want to make the analogy to the progressive income tax because that, that is a fascinating discussion because I've had, I've had challenges on this uh, about, you know, and then people argue about the progressive income tax. So I definitely want to want to talk about that when we talk about the ethics and the morality of price discrimination. But first, l- let's give the listeners, if you have a business out there, and I don't care what it is, I don't care what you sell, product or service, whatever it might be, what are the requirements uh, that a business must uh, meet to engage in price discrimination because this is kind of the holy grail because you're looking for that guy like me in the bookstore who would have paid a lot more and had that owner known anything about me, he could have charged me $20, $30 and that would have just been marginal profit to him. And I said, and the important point Ed, is I still would have walked away very happy. Even if I would have paid 30 or 50 or even up to a hundred for that book, I still would have made a profit. Yep. 
Yeah. So let's go through the four, Ron. The first one is that the firm must have market power. What do we mean by that? Not monopoly, right? No, it's 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 not monopoly like the internet or <laughs> the Facebook discussion debate you're in, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which I almost uh, launched in on, by the way, but I bit my tongue. Um, no, it's not. They don't mean when they say market power, they don't mean you, you, know, you have to be a monopoly. What they mean is you have to have a downward sloping demand curve. Now, I hate to talk in terms of graphs, but what this basically means is, you know, any downward sloping demand curve, no matter what the shape uh, is market power, that implies that your firm, your company is not just a price taker. It's actually got some control over the prices that you charge. And I think all businesses, I mean, we always talk about the toilet paper example as a, you know, as an example of being a non-commodity and all businesses have market power. So that's a fairly easy one to meet. Well, it just really means that if you can raise your prices and not lose all of your customers, right? I mean, is, you're, you're not you're, you're, the the demand curve is not completely uh, vertical, so that you, you increase by a dollar, everybody leaves you, it, right? It, it, and you know, the classic example is Farmer John with the bale of hay. If he tries to charge a buck more than Farmer Joe, you know, across the street, he's you know, all of his customers are going to go to Farmer Joe. Well, you know what? There's lots of ways to differentiate. Maybe it's based on his personality. Maybe it's based on the location of his farm. Maybe it's organic hay. I mean, you know, there's lots of ways to differentiate it. So it, it's not like Farmer John is just a price taker who has no control over his circumstances and the prices he charges. Right. And the second one, Ron, is uh, buyers with different demand elasticities must be separate into sub separate into submarkets. Okay, you got to unpack that one for us because everybody, <laughs> as soon as you you know talk about elasticities, I'm thinking rubber band. Right, right, <laughs> and 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 all this means is that you know you, you like the theater owner, you have to be able to separate different classes of customers. So the price. The, the price sensitive customers, you know, the the, the theater, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, college kids and the, the young children and the families with large kids, large amount of kids, they're more price sensitive. They're separated out because they avoid the concession stand and the popcorn lovers self-identify themselves. So there's got to be some mechanism to separate customers. Think about an airline with first class, business class, you know, uh, coach and Priceline and all that. They're separating customers. Hotels do this. If you shop on Priceline, you're obviously very price sensitive customer. So there's all these different, very creative ways to separate. Uh, my favorite example of this is Disneyland. Um, you know, in the old days, they had the A through E ticket system. I, I don't know if you remember this, but, uh, you know, the most exciting rides had the E tickets. If you wanted to go Haunted Mansion, you know, Space Mountain, you had to buy an E ticket. E actually stood for exciting. This was a classic price discrimination strategy. It was actually developed by Stanford Research Institute economists. And because they knew that, hey, the, P, the person who wants to ride the haunted house 50 times in a row is going to be willing to pay more for it. So he's going to buy a boatload of e-tickets. And that was a form of price discrimination. And, and it was a way to separate different types of buyers. And th- this happens all different ways too. I mean, it just we, we talked about movie theaters, but sporting events again is the one that I keep coming back to, and that is, and, and they're getting better and better at this over time. It used to be that they sucked at it. You know, they had four different ticket prices because they had four different sections, ma- you know, major sections of their of their stadium. Um, n- now they're much much more sophisticated when it comes to the the pricing. I mean, even San Francisco Giants, I think, are starting to add stuff like, well, who's pitching this weekend to their price. 
Right. And, and, and what team they're playing, right? I mean, I, I would even imagine you would be willing to pay more for some Mets games that were against their classic rivals than you would other teams that, you know, you may not care as much about. Yeah, and that's what they've that they've done gold, like a gold, silver, bronze type thing where you can get gold games. So there's different prices based on that. But again, some of them are much more sophisticated. But again, it's about can you have the ability to separate some of your customers into submarkets? So that's the second requirement. Now the third requirement is that the transaction cost must be less than the potential profit. What is what do you mean by that, Ron? Right, and let me go back to the Disneyland ticket. You know, the A through E ticket system was a great system. However, it did impose some costs on Disneyland and its guests. What they had to do, of course, was print the A through E tickets. They had to set up kiosks in the park to sell them. Um, and worse, that meant that the guests had to stand in another line. That's about the last thing you need to do at Disneyland, right? Stand in line to be able to go to stand in line to get on the ride. Um, so, and also, the worst part, Ed, was when you had uh, a little kid who got to the front of the line after an hour and a half wait and had the wrong ticket. Oh no! Then, then what do you, you know? That does not create a moment of happiness or a moment of magic, as <laughs> Disney. You know, that's a moment of misery. So, what Disneyland did is they figured out, you know, this is costing us a ton of money and a lot of guest unhappiness. So they just went to a flat rate ticket in 1982. You pay for the entrance and you get unlimited rides. But have you noticed? That even in Disneyland and certainly like Universal Studios, there's now different prices that upon entry that allow you to get into the VIP lane where you can cut the line and, and jump to the head of the line if you're willing to pay a high enough price. Right, the, the, with the, what they call the so-called fast pass, but that that system is even changing. I think now to a more sophisticated band type system. I, I have recent experience with this. I think it was last March. Went to Disneyland out by you in California, and they had they have not gone to the to the uh, the band technology. They were still on the fast pass, but yes, I hear that that that's coming now. One of the things that did happen to us is that there are certain times when you can get into the park earlier to ride the right. lines and that comes with a different ticket price as well so that you know for ten dollars more yes you can show up i forget forget whether it was whether it was eight or nine o'clock in the morning and then you have an hour before they let the rest of the commoners in you know right i, I know they do that if you stay at one of the hotels Right. That's right. You, you, you get in, and there's probably other ways to get that as well. Uh, that's right. That's, so that's a classic, uh, you know, example of this. That so that you know the transaction cost of price discrimination has to be less than obviously the potential profit. And the last one is the seller. You must be able to separate sellers, uh, or buyers. I'm sorry to avoid arbitrage. So uh, imagine, um, you know, you're you're pretty close to Dallas, Ed, and what in your town. So mm -hmm. if if I sold cheesecake. Uh, in your particular city that you know was just stellar cheesecake and I sold it for 20 bucks but I sold it in Dallas for 40 then what would happen over time is people from Dallas would come to your town to buy it or people from your town would buy it for 20 take it to Dallas and maybe sell it for 30 to undercut you know the sellers there to undercut me there and that's known as arbitrage and if you can't separate if you can't avoid arbitrage then it's really hard to engage in price discrimination. So this is one of the debates with like pharmaceutical companies, you know, because they sell AIDS, cocktail drugs, and other types of drugs in, in other countries at a much cheaper price. And the worry is, well, people are going to flock over the border to Canada, you know, and buy the drugs being American citizens. And, th and that indeed happens. So if you can't, if there's not a way to avoid that through different packaging, different patents, different types of mixtures or sizes, 
then it's really hard to engage in price discrimination because smart buyers are going to figure it out. There's even a fairness component to this. And in fact, it's, it's funny you brought this up because yesterday I went to the supermarket and there's the, the, the local brew craze is, is pretty prevalent right now, right? The lo- local craft beer. Uh, and, and there's this, this, there's two or three that are fairly close to me. It was interesting that the one that is closest to us uh, has a, a, a lower price, a dollar lower per six pack than the ones that are, let's call it, you know, instead of five, being five miles away, these are 30 plus miles away. And I think it's due to this arbitrage because the, the and, and also a fairness effect. Well, it only, you know, they're only trucking it from McKinney next town over. <laughs> but my guess is, is that if I visited the town closer to the, the brewery closer to Fort Worth, which is uh, that the, those prices would be lower there. Um, and the ones for my local brew, Franconia on this side would be higher. Right, and you see this with gas stations a lot. You know, the, the oil companies uh, are very sophisticated. They use this process called zone pricing. So, like, if I drive uh, six miles north of where I am, I can usually get a gallon of gas for like a dime cheaper. But if I drive towards more towards the Bay Area, more towards San Francisco, it starts to go up, which is funny because you know Chevron's located right down there. <laughs> so they're they're doing the zone pricing not just based on transportation costs, but on a whole host of other factors like the income in the area and you know all sorts of different things. Probably even how much employment and employers are located in that area because they can figure out commute patterns and things like that. Yes. So, uh, yeah, fascinating stuff, Ed. We've got we've got uh, uh, one more example of. Um, uh, well, no, that was it. Those are the four requirements. So, if your company can meet those four requirements, then then you can engage in price discrimination. And when we come back, folks. We're going to give you three types of price discrimination. In the meantime, you can contact Ed or myself at tsoe at verisage dot com. We love getting your emails and suggested topics for the show and maybe even what guests you enjoy. We had Rabbi Lappin on last week, which was an absolute thrill. And you can uh, follow us on the show at hashtag TSOE on Twitter. And now we're going to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Workplaces are only as strong as their teams. Teams are only as strong as their individual members. Are you seeking a better way to take your business to a higher level? We're here to help. Listen for Leading with Social Emotional Intelligence, Building Trust Through Intentionality and Vulnerability with host Glenn Harris. Together, we'll explore the five key behaviors of a cohesive team and other concepts designed to keep your team working smarter. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. 
Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back to The Soul of Enterprise. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and colleague, Ron Baker. We've been talking today about price discrimination. And again, for probably the fourth time, we just want to say that this is not discrimination of a racial religious, any kind of nature like this. This is simply changing your prices based on the customer's willingness and ability to pay different prices. And we've talked about the four different requirements for an organization to be able to do price discrimination. And the next topic that we want to take up is really the different what are called degrees of price discrimination. So the first one is called, obviously, first-degree price discrimination. And this is where you're charging each customer the most amount that he or she would be willing to pay for each item that he or she buys, transferring all of the consumer surplus to the seller. So this is extraordinarily sophisticated, isn't it, Ron? You need high-quality systems to be able to do first-degree price discrimination. Or, Ed, run an auction house. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Christie's. <laughs> that, that's right. If that bookstore owner had auctioned in a, in a live auction or even maybe an internet auction like eBay, that book, he probably would have got more than the 10 bucks for it because I, I probably would have bid up to $100 you know, and, and probably would have won it. So the only example of first-degree price discrimination that we know of are, I mean, purely first-degree are auction houses. Now – I think with the internet and, and examples like eBay, there and or even name your own price, there's some interesting uh, approximations to first degree price discrimination. But in terms of getting the maximum amount, like I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I'm, I'm sad to report used to be my governor at one point. Uh, Arnold <laughs> but, the governator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he bought JFK's golf clubs at a at an auction when they auctioned off uh, the Onassis estate, and I believe he paid uh, three hundred eighty seven thousand five hundred for the irons and seven hundred seventy two thousand five hundred for the woods. We're talking about a set of golf clubs probably made in the fifties, and they were real wood woods. They weren't like you know metal That's right. woods. <laughs> That's right, and and you know the thing is. Were they worth that? Well, it doesn't matter. He obviously thought they did, and he probably outbid, or his people did, any other buyer, and therefore it was worth it to him for whatever reason, trying to impress his ex-wife or whatever, make Uncle Ted happy, whatever it was. um, That's what they were worth to him. So very hard to to achieve first-degree price discrimination. But second-degree price discrimination, that is fascinating because here you're charging the same customer different prices for identical items. 
Wait, take that. Why would the same customer pay different price for the same item? I know. Isn't that fascinating? So my classic example of this is Coke. If you buy a Coke or a case of Coke probably at Costco or Sam's Club, I, I don't know. I haven't priced it recently, but I guess it probably works out to a quarter maybe a Coke, 35 cents, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's probably pretty close, yeah. But if you go to a restaurant and get a Coke, it's probably going to be a buck and a half, maybe two bucks. Do it in a bar or, you know, an upscale place. It's probably going to be a little bit more. Do it out of a vending machine and it's going to be even more. It's the same Coke and you're the same customer paying radically different prices. That's quite a spread, right? From 35 cents up to two or three bucks for the same exact same product. Well, and this is the whole coffee idea too, right? I mean, this is the this is I would get imagine why Starbucks in the airport is sometimes fifty cents to a dollar more than Starbucks on the street, and why you know Corig uh, was it Corig Keurig the uh, the coffee maker why they charge you know less for the pods, um, you know, in, in different places as well. I mean, you can buy you can buy those pods at Costco, same thing. Significantly less money, but if if you want an individual cup, say at your uh, the hotel that you were staying at, they'll they'll charge you four or five dollars for the pod. Right, right, because you're fr- you're always framing it against the Starbucks, not mm-hmm. not what it costs for making it at home. Um, another example of second degree price discrimination is uh, you know if Walmart is buying say Pampers from Procter and Gamble, they're probably going to pay less per box if they buy a train load as opposed to a truckload, right? Because of quantity discounts and things like that. And I think the theory here is the more that you buy, you know, the, the more price sensitive you are. A family is not as price sensitive over one box of Pampers, especially one they need maybe at 2 a.m., as, as Walmart would be buying a train load of them. And is this second degree price discrimination factor in where, where I, I know that, that different brands will have different packages in different stores. So you might only be able to buy the 18 ounce Cheerios in, in Walmart, whereas it's a 16 ounce box in your local Kroger or Winn-Dixie. Absolutely. Even Target has its own special packaging and maybe sizes. And yes, they're, you know, and they're, and they're probably somewhat trying to avoid that whole arbitrage situation or at least give the store competitive advantage with certain prices, maybe certain loss leaders or whatever by changing the packaging. Drug companies are notorious for this too, changing the mixture, changing the sizes, the dosage, if you will. So second degree price discrimination is really interesting. Third degree is actually charging different prices in different markets. So it, when I go to, for instance, if, if, uh, if I use a coupon, if I'm standing in line with a box of Tide and I've got a coupon uh, for, I don't know, two bucks off, and the poor guy behind me has got the exact same box of Tide but no coupon, what is Procter & Gamble doing to him? <laughs> if they can sell it to me at a profit with $2 off, what are they what are they doing to this guy? Well, they're extracting the extra 2 bucks directly out of his pocket, putting it in theirs because he's obviously less price sensitive than I am. That's the whole point of coupons, it's to keep the price sensitive customers within your sphere, right? Because otherwise, mm-hmm. what's the point of a coupon? Procter and Gamble should just drop the box of Tide by 2 bucks and give everybody the 2 bucks off, but the point is not everybody clips coupons. 
Yeah, this is fascinating. And, and this is really the, the Victoria's Secret catalog that they got so-called burned by this number of years ago, I guess, when people started sharing more information. But their catalog, I think it was their Christmas catalog, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, had different prices based on zip code. Right. And they they caught holy heck for this uh, across the board for it, but you know they, again the whole socialist mentality they were they were they were charging higher prices to places that had the zip codes that were more affluent. So at least they were at least they were, <laughs> at least they were doing that the right thing in a sense. In, in other areas, Ed, like the progressive taxation, that would be applauded by certain people. <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah, I'm not quite sure what the problem is, but but that that's an example of it, though, right, Ron? There's different absolutely. different prices in different markets ba- based on that, you know. And I just thought of a fourth one as we're sitting here talking, and and I don't know, if maybe this is not even price discrimination, but they're starting to get more sophisticated on this with with different uh, CDs and albums that come out. Like for example, there's uh, Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett have a CD out, and if you buy the Target version, there's an extra song on it. And then if you buy the iTunes version, there's another song on it that you can't get if you buy it at Target. So it's really the same price, but for slightly different products. So maybe we just invented fourth degree price discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> no, anytime you see versioning, it's a great example of either second or third degree. Uh, it's also kind of like senior discounts. Right. I mean, if I go to a senior or a place that has senior discounts with my dad, say we're traveling on the road or something, he'll get a prime rib dinner, he'll get coffee, he'll get dessert, a drink, and you know, it might be like twelve ninety five. I I might get the same prime rib, but mine will be fifteen ninety five. I'm not getting coffee, dessert, or a drink. So, <laughs> you know, what's the restaurant doing here? Well, they know that seniors have one thing on their hand, the rest of us don't, which is time which is why they make you go and get the early bird, you know, between four and six when everybody else is at work, right? I personally like to eat then anyway, so I'm good with that. But yeah, isn't, no. there, isn't there a Seinfeld episode? I just saw it where he, he, uh, to his dad and he, they want to go to dinner at four thirty or something or four, and Jerry says, "I'm not eating that early." Well, it's cheaper. Well, I'll don't worry, I'll pay for it. And then they show up at the restaurant, and all of the parents' friends are walking out, going, "Oh, look at the big shot! Look at when he's eating six <laughs> Yeah, a whole show built around. It was really funny, though. I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, and that that, that, and that's another classic example of the whole idea of of price discrimination based on on different. Well, I guess that is age, isn't it? (laughs) After our disclaimer, and 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 and, well, yeah, it it is, and it's funny because you know the seniors are are some of the wealthiest people in society. You know, and it just makes common sense, right? They've they've been in the workforce longer. They've had many more years to save and invest and all, and all of that. And they they need the discount the least. But because they have time on their hands, businesses have figured out that you know they're going to patronize those places that give them that discount. Well, yeah, and and then they have AARP negotiating for them too, but that's that's a separate show. Right, right. And of course, you know, the classic example of this is is uh is the airlines. Uh you know, the air when the airlines were deregulated in 77, you know, basically under Jimmy Carter uh with the help of Ted Kennedy. Um before when they were regulated they they could only charge what the government allowed them once they deregulated them they it was open up to, they could charge anything they wanted and they used to use this really bizarre pricing method called break even pricing which is even worse than cost plus pricing if you can imagine that and 
what they realized really fast, and this is well documented in a book by Robert Cross, who who I think you you know him, Ed. He's 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 uh, been at Professional Pricing Society. He's a legend in pricing circles. He wrote a book called Revenue Management, and he he worked at Delta. And what he uncovered at Delta, and what he did at Delta, is is just an absolutely fascinating story that he that he tells in this book. And uh, maybe we'll get into that. I'll give you a little uh, hint of what he was able to do with Delta. Because what's interesting about him, Eddie, is he was a lawyer. He, he, he was a lawyer that got thrown into the whole marketing and pricing aspect of the business just on kind of a whim. And it's just an absolutely fascinating story. But first, folks, what we want to do is we want to um, Remind you to follow us uh, and read our show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE. You can always email Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network four new employees a 20 percent increase in revenue being one of the nine million women business owners in the u.s these are your proudest numbers your landmarks of growth and success Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for our special series on the future of business. Learn how you can become the transformational leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next breakthrough wave of innovation. The Future of Business with Game Changers, presented by SAP on the Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about playing with fire, price discrimination in practice. And again, just to disclaim, we are not talking about discriminating based on race, ethnicity, religion, sex, anything like, well, <laughs> there's an interesting case of the sex thing, Ed. Um, uh, if you look at dry cleaners, they do charge uh, a higher price for women's blouses than men's shirts, say, and why is that? There's all sorts of interesting theories about it. But, um, folks, uh, what we want to talk about, we've kind of talked about the four requirements of a company to price discriminate, and then we talked about the three types of price discrimination. Um one of the ways I ran across this topic, or at least how it was implemented in practice, was a book by Robert G. Cross called Revenue Management. And he worked for Delta Airlines. He was actually in general counsel. He was a lawyer. 
And he was involved in a big litigation that made him fly to, uh, I think it was Dallas every week. And he got together with the guy in Dallas and said, this is ridiculous. You know, we're just flying too much and let's just settle this. So they settled it. And then the uh, CEO was kind of looking around for something else to make Robert do. And they dumped him in marketing and said, hey, figure out this yield management thing or this revenue management thing because it was what airlines were moving to. And he analyzed it and he realized, Ed, that Delta was probably leaving $300 million on the table by letting planes leave that, that had seats that people would have bought at a cheaper price or packing a plane so much with cheap seats uh, that it filled up really fast, thereby turning away last-minute customers, you know, business travelers who would have paid a fortune to get on the flight. And he thought it was $300 million a year left on the table just because they were misallocating their capacity and their pricing. Dang, that's, that's a lot of dough, man. <laughs> <laughs> he said, when I told people this inside in the C-suite, they were shocked. Their jaws dropped. They either didn't believe me, they thought I was nuts or whatever. And what's interesting about the airline pricing is, you know, I think Americans started it and all the airlines were able to do this, to switch over from this break-even pricing to yield management within a period of two years. That's how fast they did it. And and I'd just compare that to kind of like, say, our work with professional firms who use hourly billing. <laughs> and how long is it taking to get them <laughs> to think about sure. pricing more strategically? Uh, a heck of a lot longer than two years, I can tell you. Well, that's for sure. I, that has something to do with, I think, profitability. The airlines were probably bleeding money, but that's a that's a separate conversation. You know, I, let's let's talk about it. There's a bunch of other examples of this that some some of you may or may not have think of. I think one of the more fascinating ones to me, Ron, is is hardcover books versus paperback books. I mean, there was probably at one time a cost difference between those two, the binding technologies, but now that's not the case at all. No. In fact, from my research, Ed tells me there was never really much of a cost difference, or maybe it had been a dime or 20 cents, but it's essentially the same amount of money. So you got to scratch your head and go, hmm, what are they doing? Well, what the publishers know is, you know, the, 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 the new Harry Potter or John Grisham or Tom Clancy back in the day, you know, if you were a fanatical lover of those authors, you ran down to the bookstore the day they came out and you bought them. And they just reached into your wallet and pulled out more of the consumer surplus. And then they said, well, look, we don't want to turn away the cheapskates. We want your business too, but we're going to make you wait for nine months or maybe a year and then put this out in paperback. And we still want your business, but you know, it's, it's a different product at that point because you can't be as cool around your friends talking about this new, you know, book and can't have it on your coffee table. So it was a very clever way, deviously clever way of charging different customers different prices and having them self-identify like you do at the theater. And I wonder if, if uh, Kindle and ebook are, are, are killing that whole concept. It doesn't seem to have gone away, but it's a really curious one that, that nonetheless that seems to have existed and persisted for quite some time. Well, let me ask you this, Ed, because this, uh, I find this fascinating, and maybe it's just because, um, you know, you and I, we read a lot and we enjoy books, but I find an ebook more valuable now than a physical book, and they're a lot cheaper. They huh? are. Uh, yep, I agree. It's crazy. And, and, it, I'm keeping much more of the consumer surplus than I used to with buying books. 
and and I noticed Amazon has started to do this. They'll, they they've started to allow you to kind of purchase the bundle, you know, where you get where you get both. Because I, you know, I think that there's 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 some of us who still jones for the physical book that we'd like to touch and taste, you know. Right. But <laughs> but um, but in in a lot of cases, I do find it more valuable because the notes that I can take are now all online, and we've actually prepared for the show using you know our Amazon Kindle notes that for for the books that we review and talk about. So. Yeah, so much easier. I, I, another great example that I really like is it's it just something as banal as um, scotch tape, right? Uh, the 3M makes scotch tape and then Highland tape. And since Christmas is coming up, well, what's the difference? Well, Highland's a lot cheaper, but have you noticed it tears? <laughs> <laughs> so you pull scotch tape off, it doesn't tear, right? But Highland will tear. Well, if you're opening Christmas presents, not probably not a big deal. So you'll buy the cheaper tape because you're more price sensitive with respect to tape for that type of purchase. But if you're, you know, maybe hanging something in your office, you want tape that's not going to leave a mark or, or tear, then you got to step up and pay them more for the scotch tape. Well, there's one more example, and we'll get back to that because that has to deal with next week's show. But there's one more example that I have always found fascinating, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I did an implementation at a manufacturer of of bed sheets. And I, wouldn't you know that that you know we, you go into some stores and they have those irregular bed sheets. You want to know the difference between irregular bed sheets and regular bed sheets is? <laughs> What's that? The packaging. The packaging. Yeah. The packaging. They 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 don't go. Oh, look! This one doesn't is not lined up properly. Put it in an irregular package. Right. They 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 just put the the bed sheet. This company did anyway. Put the same bed sheets, but a certain percentage of them they put in irreg and mark them irregular. And this this is a, a pure example of price discrimination. And what they did was it says, yeah, we we tend to get the ones that are marked as you know that that are the higher end ones. If there is a problem, they'll get sent back. But if you buy them as a regular and there's a problem, nothing happens. Nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> and just adding the time we have left because I know we're short on time. But uh, you know the, the ethics of this. I mean, uh, a lot of people recoil at, at uh, you know price discrimination when they hear it. But if it wasn't for price discrimination, you wouldn't have cheaper prices for kids at Disneyland or in theaters or on airplanes, right? Poor countries wouldn't be able to afford cutting-edge, leading-edge drugs like AIDS cocktail or you know Ebola vaccines or whatever. And the fact of the matter is price discrimination allows uh, a country to be wealthier because it shifts around this consumer and producer surplus. And it's actually a very moral and ethical thing if you really start to, to, to dive into it because what separates this from progressive taxation is you know, a tax is compulsory. I, get, I may or may not get a benefit from paying a tax, right? a direct benefit, but when I buy something, I get a direct benefit and that's what makes it different. Here, here for price discrimination. Yeah. <laughs> and folks, it is the holy grail of, uh, of, of business. So it's something that you should think about and think about clever ways to engage in it. But so, Ed, what, what's, uh, what's next week's topic? Well, next week we have a, we're going to be talking about a book called Scroogeonomics, Why You Shouldn't Buy Presents for the Holidays. Of course, that show will be broadcast on Black Friday. So you want to be looking forward to that one, Why You Shouldn't <laughs> Buy Presents for the Holidays. You're actually, we're actually going to try and make the case not to buy gifts. That's interesting. All right, Ed. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, folks, we'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 